Hello and welcome to the Gold Lappers podcast. I'm definitely not Jeff Goldblum. And I'm definitely not Cindy Lauper. And this is definitely not the hit 1988 movie Vibes, starring Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper, but it may very well be the next best thing. I'm Ethan May. And I'm Kylie Stone. Let's get started. Vibes. Today we're continuing our ranking rom-com series with Runaway Bride, starring Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. Again. Right. So here we go again. If this is your first episode of the Gold Lobbers podcast, we're currently working our way through the top 75 highest grossing rom-coms by U.S. domestic box office. And when we're done, we're going to rank them from worst to best. And a fair warning that there will always be spoilers. Kylie, would you like to tell us about Runaway Bride? Yeah, sure. I, I guess I might as well. Runaway Bride is about a young woman named Maggie who is known throughout the town as the Runaway Bride because she's run away from three separate weddings now. Over in New York City, a journalist named Ike writes an article about this. Maggie writes the newspaper back, telling them that they had a bunch of inaccuracies, which results in him getting fired. With Maggie's fourth wedding coming up, Ike seeks redemption by traveling to Maggie's small town to uncover the truth, and as always, chaos ensues. Boy, howdy, does chaos ensue. Kylie, I think we need to suspend the podcast until I have health insurance. I don't think it's safe for me to keep watching these movies without being able to go to therapy afterwards. Um, I think the biggest thing that made me want to go to therapy was his name being Ike. Not even just that his name was Ike, but that his full name is Homer Eisenhower Graham. What kind of name is that? Yeah, that's just gross. I also, I did consciously write a note down, like, why the fuck is his name Ike? It's weird. Who goes by that? I don't know. That, among other things, this movie made me want to Julia my Roberts into Richard's gears. (laughs) Oh, that one hurt. You're welcome. I'm not sorry, and I don't think I ever will be. I will say I liked that his cat was named Italics. I thought that was kind of cute. Was this cat named Italics? I don't think I caught that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's adorable. Okay, so I'll say the first first good chunk of this movie, I did not like it, but it did kind of grow on me as it went along. This movie also grew on me as it went on, and I, I think we need to address right away the parallels between this movie and Pretty Woman. Same director... Same two leads. Also, Hector Elizondo and the bartender were both in Pretty Woman. Like, I was just like, wow. It had the same weird pacing issues, like this super bonkers beginning that made no sense. And then, like, once the characters kind of connected and the romance, like, kind of got up on its feet and had a way to run, like, it became, like, more believable and more earnest. But, man, Gary Marshall... You're just so close to being good at making movies, but I just don't think you're good at making movies. Uh That's weird, though, because, like, I thought the pace of this movie was actually pretty good. Like, I didn't find myself wanting to get up and walk around and stare at the runtime for a while. Like, I thought it was paced pretty well, and I kept myself uh, watching. I didn't have issues with the pace. I just had issues with how freaking bonkers it was at the beginning. Like, it was so, like, he's the crazy New Yorker in the big New York City, and she's, like, the quirky country. She was literally Delaney Rowe. She was literally a Delaney Rowe TikTok. Like, the way Delaney Rowe wears, like, the overalls and then says something, like, overly eager and super quirky, I was like, she's literally making fun of Julia Roberts in this movie. <laughs> 
I don't know. Yeah, I do see that. I will say it didn't lean as heavily into like the city boy versus country girl like conflict as much as I thought it would. It didn't, but I feel like it tried really hard in the first 20 minutes to show you just how country and how rural her life is versus his big city life. Yeah. Well, Richard Gere in this movie, my problem in Pretty Woman was that he was not charming. I saw nothing at all. And if we exclude the first chunk of the movie, I thought he was actually pretty good. I thought he was like a little charming. I have to I have to agree. I actually was... Like, I didn't find myself writing a lot of notes about Richard Gere, whether that be a good thing or a bad thing. Like, I feel like this movie had me writing lots of, like, frustrated notes or, like, why is this happening? But I don't think I ever specifically wrote any notes about Richard Gere. And I guess that's a compliment because, yeah, he stuck out less to me than he did in Pretty Woman. Yeah, because Pretty Woman, he was just so boring. But here he was, like, an actual guy. Yeah, and and you know, going going back over to like Julia Roberts' quirkiness, it really shines to me when Julia Roberts stops acting, like air quotes acting and starts like talking. Like when Joan Cusack had her do the platypus face, it was the same thing with the way he like surprised her in Pretty Woman like it was this clearly unscripted moment where she was put on it felt like something from like the DVD extras that made it into the movie like she wasn't even talking to her scene partner like she was clearly talking to the director behind the camera like oh it's so embarrassing I I don't know I thought it was cute no I thought it was very cute like I thought it was like it was just I thought she became the point I'm making is I thought she became so much more endearing when she was having a human conversation as opposed to like acting the way that Gary Marshall was telling her to act to be Maggie. Like the less mm. hard she tried to be Maggie, the more believable she became. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get that. Like early on, it was clear that Gary Marshall was like, we really need to paint a picture of Maggie being quirky and into engineering and not like other girls and no, that ain't it. Yeah, well, okay. Remember when you said that Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman was, like, the most gorgeous person on the planet? I do remember saying that. Okay, so I think Julia Roberts in Runaway Bride is the most gorgeous person on the planet. I think I'm still gonna hold to Cameron Diaz and There's Something About Mary. As much as I just loathe the ground that that movie walks on... I still, I think I'm just going to have to hold to Cameron Diaz being the most beautiful woman that I've ever seen whenever that movie was made. But Julia Roberts, just in the 90s in general, it, I might give it to you. Yeah, well, she had more lesbian energy this time. She had big time lesbian energy, but I was going to wait for you to bring it up. Yeah, no, she did. Unfortunately, uh, she ends up with Richard Gere. Yeah, when she really could have ended up with Joan Cusack. Just, you had two lesbian icons in this movie, and they didn't smooch once. <laughs> I don't actually know yeah. if Joan Cusack is a lesbian icon. I just kind of said that, but her character came off as, like, super queer to me, even though she was married. Yeah, I don't know about her being an icon either, but what what do I know? I don't know. I thought Joan Cusack was very silly, and she made me smile a number of times. Oh my god, Yeah. No, I thought all the side characters are actually pretty good. I liked a lot of them. This movie just left me with so many questions. Like, I feel like the whole time I was like, who were her friends? 
How did her mom die? Did her father seek help for his alcoholism? Who is Fisher, and why is he married to Ike's ex-wife? Has Gary Marshall ever been to rural America? Does Richard Gere run a drug smuggling operation to subsidize his $47 million New York apartment? And who the fuck would buy Julia Roberts' lamps? I liked the lamps. I thought the lamps were the ugliest thing in the entire world. I liked them a lot, so at least one person is out there buying them. At least one person is out there. No, that was like my my prevailing thought. It was like, wow, can you imagine like moving to the big city or attempting to get your name out there in the big city by selling your like handmade lamps that are made from like electrical outlets and nothing else? <laughs> and she did it. As if like an electrical outlet isn't just like a small metal housing that looks tacky and bulky and gross for a lamp. I don't know. I thought that was really weird. Well, I can't say I'm um, good at interior design so my claim means nothing but you know i don't know regardless i found myself asking lots of things like i I really wanted to know like we just buried maggie's dad's alcoholism that was never spoken of again yeah and i thought it created a really compelling story but then it just kind of disappeared i feel like i didn't really have a sense for like who maggie's friends were either like i didn't I feel like they could have dug more into like Fisher and Ike's ex-wife. Like there, I don't know. It felt like there was lots of like random crap that was thrown in there. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I found myself having lots of questions. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't mind it as much. I thought all of those were like fun little quirky details. And because the movie is already two hours long, don't think there's room to include more, more about that. Yeah, that's fair. And I... You know, I I guess I have a question for you. Did you did you get like a whimsical vibe going into this movie? As in like at the beginning? Like at the beginning when Julia Roberts was on the horse, I had half a mind that this movie was going to be The Princess Bride. Yes. Or after The Princess Bride in style. Yes. I don't think that horse shot was necessary. Like I get why it was there when it ties into the end, but I don't think it was important at all. It's just like every time there was like a flashback to like one of her old weddings, like I got this like whimsical Princess Bride vibe and I kind of dug it, but I couldn't tell if it was intentional. I honestly don't know. Like it felt like bits of Maggie's past were a fairy tale. Like they weren't, but it felt like there was like some weird fairy tale energy to this movie. And I wish it had like really gone fully into like the fair i don't know i wish this movie had just been sillier and more whimsical i I don't know does that make any sense i feel like i'm not making sense yeah i feel like it has to like pick pick a direction and it had just enough whimsy to make you want more whimsy yeah i don't know i feel like weird stylistic things like that are really common in these movies though like it didn't do enough of this or it didn't do enough of that and that's just like the side effect of a movie being a rom-com is i feel like 99 times out of 100 a rom-com could be worked to be a more compelling movie if it was less romantic and less comedic yeah that is such as the nature of life but also rom-coms yeah like finding that balance between the rom and the com it's it's really tough. You probably could have done more ROM or you probably could have done more COM or you could have just made it a drama and not tried to be ROM or COM in the first place and we might have ended up in a better place. I don't 
know. I feel like this one was pretty good at balancing the rom and the com. I feel like it did have a semi-decent balance of the rom and the com. I will say that. Yeah, like when Richard Gere was doing that silly little uh, dance through the through the field to avoid snakes, I like audibly laughed. <laughs> That was that was really really silly. There were there were a number of moments in this movie where I could see the actors breaking character, and they were all like the most endearing moments. So I will say, shout out to Gary Marshall for finding ways to make your actors get silly to bring out really magical moments in your movies. Yeah, shout out to Gary. Shout out to Gary. Did I did I really vibe with this movie? No, but I think it did okay. Yeah, no, I once again had low expectations and my expectations were exceeded. Although <sighs> the the beginning, I don't like Richard Gere's character in the beginning. And like none of that made any sense either. Like, can you imagine like a journalist in the 90s getting fired for like getting a couple facts wrong? About, like, some small-town girl from Maryland. Also, all of these people recognizing Richard Gere because I'm a columnist, or my column, like, they said the word column, like, 27 times in the first 10 minutes of the movie, and I was like, oh my freaking god, can you imagine someone reading a newspaper? Yeah, no, I can't, actually. Like, imagine the inciting incident of a movie being, like, people reading newspapers, as if anybody ever read newspapers. I don't know, man. It was the 90s. No, I kid. People definitely read newspapers, but like you're like walking through and there's just like a room full of people. Like everyone you see on camera is like holding USA Today, reading specifically his column. And I'm like, in what fucking universe is a columnist in a newspaper like this famous? Mm, You got me there. Again, I'm not saying that newspapers weren't a big thing and a thing that were read by people very often. I just like... I was alive when newspapers happened. Like, my grandpa to this day reads the newspaper. When I was a child, my grandpa read the newspaper. My my other grandpa read the newspaper every day. And I myself read the newspaper often as, like, a small child. And I just, like, I can't imagine a newspaper columnist being, like, well-known enough for this movie's premise to be any sliver of believable. Well, I mean, I wonder if it's because the article was about Maggie... They all were like, oh my god, that's Maggie from our hometown. Now we know who this guy is. I wasn't even talking about the people in Maggie's hometown. I was talking about, like, the people in New York that, like, recognized him on the street from his column. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Like, that's, like, so wild to me. Like, I just, even though his picture is next to the column, I was like, no, I don't. I don't buy a columnist ever getting recognized on the street. Now, it's one thing if you're like in your neighborhood and you're going and seeing your regular people, but this did not strike me as that. Yeah, no. Um, And I don't know. That's just not something you retain, I don't think. Like when you're reading an article, I have never once retained the image of the author. Yeah, exactly. Like I just, I don't know. It's just, I, I don't think Gary Marshall is good at getting us into the plot. Like, I don't think Gary Marshall is strong with inciting incidents, and I think this was an even weaker inciting incident than Pretty Woman. Interesting. I have to think back to Pretty Woman. Yeah, that was also pretty bad. (laughs) It was also pretty bad, just like going up to a hooker and just like randomly starting to talk, and then like, I, I don't know, it was, Pretty Woman was a really, really weird inciting incident, and it was like, 
really clunky and it was clear that they changed a lot in post because the camera angles were really wild. I don't know. But I, I'm really having a hard time deciding which movie had a wackier inciting incident. And I'm sorry I keep comparing them, but I I think it's interesting because I think this is the first time we've had a reoccurring director on the list. Yeah, well, and also reoccurring actors. Like, it's going to be really hard not to compare them. This really feels like Pretty Woman 2 Electric Boogaloo, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, no, and that's... Richard Gere's character, I feel... Like, you said the director's really bad at inciting inciting incidents, and that makes sense because... The whole premise is dumb, and then he gets there, and he's so invasive, and he doesn't take no for an answer, and it all just feels very weird. Yeah, and, like, the fact that when he's back in New York, we have, like, Chekhov's breaking and entering. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's so much... Oh, I don't know how to put it. Ignore that thought for now. No, but, like, they, they break and enter... He breaks and enters like twice in two minutes early in the movie. Or no, she breaks and enters twice in like two movie minutes early in the movie. And then at the end of the movie, she's like in New York and she breaks and enters again. And I was like, oh, they didn't think it would happen. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what that was about. Yeah, I don't know. And then like, I feel like Bob was completely forgotten about when it was not convenient to be thinking about Bob in this movie. (laughs) Oh, remind me who Bob was. Bob is like her mountain climber fiance. Oh, right. Him. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, exactly. (laughs) Like, remind me who Bob is. Yeah, he is her fiance throughout a good chunk of the movie. Yeah, and he was, I did not like him. Like, I get that was his purpose, but ugh. Yeah, I didn't like him at all. And um, I don't know, his character was just... His character was just weird. Like, also, um, Bob has climbed Everest twice without oxygen. No, he hasn't. Yeah, what? Why? Why was that a detail? I want to say there have been people that have climbed Everest without oxygen. It is extremely challenging to do. Very dangerous. You will probably die. You have to have, like, one in a million genetics to climb Everest without oxygen. Sorry, sorry to get all technical about something so dumb, but like, also, you do not take someone to Annapurna on your honeymoon who is not a mountain climber. You just can't do that. Yeah, I... That was so weird, and I don't know why it was necessary. Like, I get that they're saying that, you know, Maggie just goes along with whatever the guy wants, even if the guy's shit is really weird, but it just felt too detailed for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 valid. And I I really apologize for going off on this rock climbing tangent. Like Everest Everest is like kind of a mountain that you can climb as an inexperienced climber. Everest has kind of become like a running joke because like there's so many Sherpas and they do so much work to make Everest climbable. Like it's kind of just a joke that you need like $50,000 and you can pretty much climb Everest. But like a normal person can't just like go climb a mountain in the Himalayas. That's like years of training. Many people die every year doing these things. Like mountaineering is very dangerous. And also the amount of money that you need 
to go climbing in the Himalayas is astounding. Like, you're just not going to the Himalayas on your honeymoon. Sorry to get all technical about this. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk about climbing in the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, and Bob's a, a high school gym teacher. Bob's a high school gym teacher. Maggie does what now? I don't think I saw Maggie do... I, I think I saw Maggie, like, tinker with things a couple times, and she, like, question mark, runs the hardware store? Yeah, it's her family's hardware store that she runs. Yeah, so we've established that Maggie and Bob both make $12 an hour. <laughs> Oof. Sorry, it was the late 90s. Like, I, it's probably generous that they were both making $12. I don't know, maybe a teacher in the late 90s was making more than $12 an hour. But we sure do underpay teachers, and I feel like someone running a hardware store is not raking in the dough. You're just, you're, it costs $100,000 to go mountaineer in the Himalayas. Like, there's a reason you see all those videos sponsored by Red Bull. That shit's expensive. Okay, and was it also weird that, like, Maggie just kind of shows up to the school and that's just kind of an established thing? I thought it was just kind of weird that everybody showed up to everything in this movie. Like, this... Like, so I've lived... I've lived in small-town America. I used to live in Rapid City, South Dakota and Bozeman, Montana. Both cities with between 30 and 60,000 people. And it's just like, that's people. They're not these tiny close knit towns. I don't know that. I don't know that energy to exist. And I, I felt like everybody was just everywhere in this movie and it didn't make any sense. Yeah. I also felt that. And that's how Richard Gere was able to infiltrate her life so easily. Yeah. And, and like you said before, Richard Gere was absolutely everywhere. Like he was up in Maggie's motherfucking grill a lot in this movie. And it really felt like restraining order or call the cops worthy. Yeah, it was creepy. And like, I liked their relationship once they like really got into it. But before that, he was gross. Yeah, like there were definitely like better, more natural ways that that could have happened. Like, I don't know, he could have been just like a reporter who ended up being in that town working on another story. And then he just happened to like run into Maggie. Like, I don't know. It was just it was so contrived that like one of Maggie's exes was drunk at what noon in a bar and happened to run into Richard Gere. Recognize Richard Gere from his column, by the way, Maggie's ex fiance from small town rural America recognized Richard Gere from his column. I don't know. The whole thing was just really contrived. Well, I do think Richard Gere was like, oh, I need a story. And this guy's like, I have a story. Still, what was Richard Gere doing in that bar at like, what was it like noon on a Monday? Yeah, I think he like called his bartender friend. and was like, I need someone to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, I don't remember. The beginning of that movie was just an absolute blur for me. And I was furiously scribbling notes about how irritated I was by the beginning of this movie. Yeah, and you're right. Like inciting is... Inciting incidents are bad uh, for this director. But once we settle in, like, I'm having an okay time. I found myself also having a pretty good time once I got into the swing of this movie. Like, it it wasn't phenomenal or anything, but it was cute. I, I, could, I could go for certain parts of it. I'm sorry, we seem to be having some technical difficulties now that we're now that we're back i thought of a thing that i noticed that i wanted to talk about because i actually really liked it okay do you remember early in the movie when he did like that kind of like mock proposal like i, I would want like a person to say this thing to me and he said that like super romantic thing yeah 
And like the look, like the way he delivered it was really sexy. And Julia Roberts was like, oh, fuck. And then she delivered it back to him at the end, like word for word. That was so sweet. That was pretty sweet. And I dug that. Like I wrote like a little note, like, oh, Richard Gere's mock proposal. And I did like the little like eyes looking to the side, like, "Uh oh, (laughs) yeah, I really, really liked that. So there were there were like some genuinely good moments in this movie. Like there were moments where like things connected and like logical beats happened, like her leaving him at the altar when it was in like a super crowded, crazy place. Like that kind of had to happen because we know that it's clearly a thing with the crowds and the anxiety of it all. Like it was cool that they got married like on a hill by themselves and everybody else came up later. Like, I don't know. There was there was definitely some cute stuff going on here. Yeah, and like, while I don't like the method that Richard Gere took to make this happen, and I guess it really wasn't even his doing either, but I do like that they showed Maggie realizing the effect she has on other people. Yeah. But I wish they would have committed just a little more to that. Yeah, yeah, I can see what you mean there. Like, it baby addressed Maggie's issues with people and how she treats people, but it didn't like super address them. And I don't think it was super important to the movie, but I do think a little bit more would have been nice. Yeah, I think a little bit more might have been nice there. There were there were like a few there were a few moments where I was like, maybe we could have cut this and done a little bit more of this. You know, but I will say, like, you know, we were talking about how like creepy Richard Gere was. I will say early on he was creepy, but he wasn't creepy in a flirty way which i appreciated like he was just kind of like getting up in her grill to mess with her because she got him fired but he wasn't he wasn't like trying to get with her or anything so it wasn't like creepy in a flirty way and i kind of appreciated that because i feel like that would have been worse like that would have been very there's something about mary yeah that would have been infinitely grosser and i don't think he was creepy in a flirting way at all i think it was just like the way he like went to her family's house and like she was so clearly upset by him being there and it was just like ha 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 this is funny and the way her like oblivious ass fiance was just like yeah i don't know whatever it's the guy he's here just like absolutely unconcerned about his presence the entire time until he just like kisses his fiance and he's like oh shit oh my god when he had richard gear stand in for the groom like buddy you're cruising for a bruising i don't know what else to tell you that was ridiculous but i also like that the friends were like oh no 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 this can't you can't you can't do that you just you just can't do that man you can't have a handsome man stand in for you at your at your practice wedding that just ain't how it goes Yeah, and I know we have more information than Bob, but Bob. You know what? That's on you, Bob. You need to be more perceptive. (laughs) Bro, her exes were fucking train wrecks in this movie. Dear Lord. Yeah, and I think I think I expected that. Like, there's a reason she ran away three times, and it does have a lot to do with the crowds, but also, like, these guys were small-town guys. There were some parts, there were a lot of parts of small town America that I didn't dig, but I'll tell you what, I thought her dad was a decently compelling character and I thought her grandmother was hysterical. Her grandma was so funny. The way she told the other old lady to cover her ears. (laughs) And then she was like, you can uncover them. The tea's cold. I cackled. She's so funny. I love her. Something about taming the one-eyed snake. Excuse me, grandma? (laughs) 
And Julia Roberts is just like, oh, no, no, that that happened like a while ago. I tamed the one-eyed snake a while ago. And the grandma's just like, oh, okay. I know. She's like completely unbothered by it. Like it's, it was just so random. Yeah. So I liked her and I did like, I didn't like the dad, but I did think he was a compelling character. Yeah. The dad gave me like good natured John Goodman vibes and I liked him. Yeah. And I did, I did like when Richard Gere stood up for her, maybe he was overstepping some boundaries, but when like everybody was making fun of Maggie, including her own father, like Richard Gere was like, hey, maybe that's not cool. And it just kind of shows how much he's grown. No, literally, like, I wrote that note, like, a number of times. I was like, everybody in this small town is a freaking dick to Maggie, man. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, because Richard Gere came there with the intent of being a dick, and he was at first, and I didn't like him at first. But it it reversed. It's like, man, can we imagine just, like, can you imagine just, like, an entire small town demonizing a woman for not, like, going through with a marriage she gets bad vibes about? Like, why don't we take a chill pill, everybody? Yeah, with like three really weird shitty men. Three extremely weird shitty men. Like, but we do need to put a little bit of this on Maggie. Like, Maggie, you cannot date everything that breathes. You just can't do it. You're going to end up in bad places. Yeah. And oh my God, the, uh, the, the eggs bit. I thought that was really interesting. I thought the eggs bit was interesting, but I thought it thought it was cooler than it was. Oh, absolutely. It did. This movie thought it was cooler than it was in general. Like Julia Roberts making fucking 15 different types of eggs and like her big defining like fuck you moment is I like poached eggs or I like eggs Benedict. I like eggs Benedict. <laughs> that's it. That's all you got. That That's how you say that you've changed is because you like eggs Benedict. Come on, man. <laughs> I thought it was fun. I knew it was stupid, but I still thought it was fun. Oh, of course it was stupid, but there comes a time where I have to put my foot down because there's too much stupid. (laughs) There were moments in this movie where there was too much stupid. Can we talk about the line, nothing like sharing your nuptial bed with two Sherpas and a yak? I don't know if I want to talk about that line. I don't think I want to talk about it either, but I wrote it down in my memorable quotes and it needed to be spoken out loud because fuck that line. Yeah, that's fair. Speaking of my memorable quotes, um... I don't like having a father who's drunk all the time. Bruh. Bruh. Maggie, you can't talk like that to an alcoholic. He doesn't want to be drunk all the time either. Yeah, but that does sound like a daughter lashing out at her alcoholic father. That feels pretty par for the course. Oh man, it was brutal though. Like I was just like, damn, Maggie, you gotta chill. Yeah. Maggie, you gotta chill. You just can't talk. You can't just talk to an alcoholic like that. It's not going to be effective. No, I don't think she was trying to be effective, though. Also, sorry, one more, one more memorable quote. Um, When she runs away from the wedding on the FedEx truck and they go, where's she going? And then Bob just goes, mm, wherever it is, she'll be there by 1030 tomorrow. <laughs> get, the fuck, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Do you know what that reminded me of? As far as like obvious product placement goes, bro, they literally put a FedEx ad in this movie. They literally put like a Super Bowl FedEx ad in this movie. Oh my (laughs) God. I'm normally not good at noticing product placement, but I did notice that Richard Gere had a box of plain ass Cheerios. Fucking what? Oh man. But like, I, 
I was looking at that. I was looking at that FedEx ad. Have you ever seen Wayne's World? Uh, no. There's this bit in Wayne's World where they're like, we will not bow to any sponsor. And Wayne, like, opens up a Pizza Hut pizza box right in front of the camera, like, pulls out a slice and, like, smiles and does, like, a thumbs up. And then Garth is like, yeah, I can't believe people will just sell out to anything. And he's wearing, like, a full Pepsi tracksuit or something. <laughs> yeah that checks out they're like bashing on product placement while just like waving it around in front of the camera's face and that like fedex product placement was like wow that that might have been the most brazen product placement like only surpassed by like the product placement in michael bay's transformers franchise oh yeah i haven't seen them but i do know about that I have this memory of watching Transformers in like 2008 or whenever that movie came out. And I was like a 12 to 14 year old child. And I was like, wow, they really have like a Transformer, like a Decepticon that was made out of like a Mountain Dew machine. Like you can't wave it in my face any more obviously than that. Youch. And I thought that was pretty wild. And then like as I got older, I was like, wow, yeah, Michael Bay, Michael Bay puts a lot of freaking product placement in his movies. I believe you. You know, because here's the thing. I don't have an inherent problem with product placement, right? If you do it smartly, it's genius. Like, The Breakfast Club is the greatest Ray-Bans ad in history. (laughs) That's so true. Wait. Like, no, like, that's actual, that's product placement. Like, the Ray-Bans in The Breakfast Club, that's product placement. You can have good product placement that's subtle and feels like a part of the movie and it's more effective but when you're just like i don't know but it'll be there by 10 30 tomorrow like get the fuck out of here yeah and of course bob said it of course bob said it bro was bob like was bob like discount john ham oh my god i had that exact same thought i didn't write it down because i don't write anything down but i had that exact same thought now, John Hamm was not working in Hollywood at this point. I believe John Hamm's first movie was We Were Soldiers, which is a movie I liked quite a bit when I was in high school. I want to say that came out in 2003? Googling. Hold, please. Yeah, We Were Soldiers came out in 2002. So that was John Hamm's first movie. So, like, John Hamm was not, like, a working actor at this point. Or he was in college or doing really obscure stuff. So like, he's not really a discount John Hamm, but like I was looking at him and I was like, man, John Hamm would have murdered his Bob if this movie was made like 10 years later. Yeah. In spirit, he was a discount John Hamm. In spirit, he was a discount John Hamm. Just like in spirit, Paul Dooley was like a discount John Goodman as Maggie's dad. I wouldn't even call him a discount, though, because I think he did a good job. No, I feel like that's really insulting to Paul Dooley. I thought Paul Dooley did a great job. Oh, my gosh. Paul Dooley is still alive, and he's 95. Oh, my God. Holy crap. Good for Paul Dooley. You know what? I take it back. John Goodman's actually discount Paul Dooley and everything that he's ever been in. I don't make the rules. And honestly, I will back you up on that. I'm now scrolling through John Dooley's filmography, and I need to know what else I've seen him in. He's someone in 16 Candles, but I don't I don't remember his face. Yeah, I don't really recognize any of his filmography. He seems to be like a guy who does more like character actor stuff, though for what it's worth, he's Sarge in Cars. The Cars franchise, I should say. Oh my god. Is that Oh, I can't go there. Oh, I, you have to go there now. It'll just show how chronically online I am. See, no, now I have to know and you have to say it. 
Okay, well, I was wrong anyway, but I was going to say, is he the hot one? Um. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I mean, he's the one who looks like a military Humvee because he's a Humvee. So. Yeah, I just looked it up. I, it wasn't who I was thinking. Who were you thinking of as the hot one in Cars, Kylie? <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm too embarrassed. Well, now I need an answer. Because for me, it's Guido. For me, Guido's the hot one. For me, it's, um, and most of the internet, it's it's Doc. <laughs> like, like, like Doc Hudson? Yeah, that one. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. Like, the way he's got that, like, Tom Selleck stash. <laughs> like, okay, so I don't, personally. I liked the girl car when I was younger, but, like objectively i'd like to change the subject (laughs) okay okay i think we could stop talking about the attractiveness of the cars in the cars franchise needless to say paul dooley was one of the cars in the cars franchise and it's sadly probably what he's best known for which is kind of a mega oof but he's 95 and still kicking around so good for paul dooley yeah good for him and he did great in this movie yeah, no, I thought he he genuinely might have been the strongest acting performance because there were there were four or five distinct moments early on where like Julia Roberts acting maybe want to stick my balls in a sewing machine. Oh, no, I didn't notice that. Oh, man. Just like some of her like really like on the nose, quirky lines, like the way like I put like a little axle grease in the store. Like, I don't know. It was so they sounded so unnatural. And I just I was just like, oh, my God, please tell me that she's not going to be like this the whole movie. And she really wasn't. She really wasn't, which is what made it stick out like even more. Like, I swear, if you went and watched the first 20 minutes of this movie, you'd and then just stopped. You'd be like, oh, yeah, mega oof. Like, that's like. Razzie for worst actress worthy acting right there. Youch. Youch. Uh, Kylie, you got anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Or can we get into the numbers? Yeah, no, let's get into those numbers. Let's get into those numbers. Okay, come on, you guys. Let's get serious. Stop dicking around. All right. Now it's time for us to get into the criteria that we use to rank and rate this movie. For those following along at home, our categories are as follows. Are there boobs in this movie? Were women involved in the writing or directing process? Does it pass a Bechtel test? It's actual quality and rom-com quality on a scale of 1 to 10. How sexist and how problematic is it on a scale of 1 to 10? And a final grade. Well, there definitely weren't boobs in this movie. I think that was for the best. I think that was for the best, but there's still like the obligatory womp womp, no boobs. Of course, of course. I don't think this movie was rated R. I think it was PG-13. I don't know off the top of my head, but this movie was like strong PG-13 vibes. I don't know. I should probably Google that before I say it out loud. (laughs) Did you just Google that? I did just Google that. I don't know. Maybe there were F words. Oh, wow. This movie was rated PG. I could honestly get behind that. Holy guacamole. A PG movie. I don't think that's happened since uh, my Big Fat Greek Wedding. Wow. Look at you go, Runaway Bride. I see you PG rom-com. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't any nudity. There wasn't really anything sexual. Oh, wow. Holy crap. This movie was written by a woman. Yay! This movie was written by two women. What? This movie was directed by Gary Marshall and written by Sarah Perriott and Josanne McGibbon. Okay. I've never heard the name Josanne before. That's kind of an interesting name. 
Fun fact, opening uh, Josanne McGibbon's Wikipedia article, Josanne McGibbon is an American screenwriter who previously teamed with Sarah Perriott in one of the longest writing partnerships in Hollywood. They were a team for 33 years from 1986 to 2019. Oh my God, that's so cute. They have written such movies as Three Men and a Little Lady, Runaway Bride, The Starter Wife, uh, The Descendants Trilogy, Choose <gasps> Love... Wait, the Descendants trilogy? Oh, that's Kenny Ortega. Interesting. Is that like a Disney Channel thing? Yeah, it's a Disney Channel original movie. Oh, woof. Well, they tried, I guess. I don't know any. <laughs> I don't know anything about the Descendants, but uh, I, I'm just gonna say it, man. Uh, Kenny Ortega is no Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> according to you. <laughs> well, I mean, hey. The High School Musical Quadrilogy is pretty stunning. Good for Kenny Ortega, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> I loved High School Musical 2. You know what? That's so fair. And High School Musical 2 bangs from end to end. Like, musically speaking, I, I will legit still unironically listen to songs from High School Musical 2 sometimes. Oh my god, yeah. No, that that is that's normal. Like, work this out? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Also, I just want to say the ease with which Zac Efron hits the B flats in work, work, work this out. Like, bro, he's up there. That is a high note. Yeah, I remember. I think he didn't sing in the first one, but then he did in the second. Yeah, he was great. Corbin Blue was great in High School Musical 2. Also, like, I Don't Dance, iconic. Perfect. I think that was everyone's gay awakening if you are a male presenting person. You think so? Like, just like Lucas Grabiel and Corbin Blue clearly fucked after that song. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I want to say they switch clothes. They do, yes. That's like a thing that happens in the movie. But um, yeah, I don't know. Lucas Grabiel's character, whatever his name was. What, what's his name? Ryan. Ryan, yeah. Just absolute gay icon. Absolutely. And I'm actually saying that with full confidence and full sincerity. He slays. Oh, no, yeah. Sorry, this entire tangent to say is that this movie was actually written by women. <laughs> awesome. I love that I just take the, like, when I'm writing these, jotting these down, it's just like women involved, question mark, and I just change the question mark to an exclamation point and move on to the next bullet. <laughs> <laughs> women involved, exclamation point. And that's all you need. I don't feel the need to Google it, but I got the vibe that this movie, uh, the gold lopper even, that this movie passed the Bechdel test on a number of occasions. Yeah, there's no way Maggie talked solely about men to her friends. Yeah, she definitely said something about like swapping out Axel Grease or something mechanical to one of her female friends. So yeah, this movie definitely passed a Bechdel test. Well, and also that whole scene, you know, where she's like apologizing to her best friend. And while like they do talk about how she flirts with men a lot... There's a lot of stuff in there that's not about men. That is so true. Yeah, so this movie passes a Bechdel test with flying colors. Uh, which brings us to the real question. What are we thinking about for actual quality in this movie? Oh, I've been struggling with the numbers on this one. I didn't even think about it, honestly. I didn't even go and rate this movie. Like, I feel like I had pretty low expectations because it was... Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, part two, Electric Boogaloo. I didn't really like Pretty Woman. Like, I had pretty low expectations for this movie. So I feel like it ended up being better than I expected it to. But 
I, I really didn't even know where to start. For reference, we gave Pretty Woman an actual quality of 5.5 and a rom-com quality of 6.5, just in case you were curious what those numbers were. Interesting. Well, I did, I think I did like Runaway Bride a smidge better. I think I did too. And I think, I think Gary Marshall, I hate to say this, it sounds so pretentious, but I I think he, I think he matured as a filmmaker in between these movies. Like, I feel like he learned from Pretty Woman that the whimsical things work better. And this movie felt very light and very whimsical and it wasn't taking itself nearly as seriously as Pretty Woman took itself. And I don't know. I like Gary Marshall directing a PG movie over an R rated movie. Yeah. Yeah. So how about like a six? You know, I like, I was, I, I might've even gone as high as a six and a half, but I think I'll go I, feel six like six, and a half. I felt like six and a half jumped out to me, but I, I need to exercise my critical muscles here. This movie is a six out of 10. Okay. Like we need to be realistic here. Th- this movie is a six out of 10 actual quality. And I, I think it needs to stay there. Sounds good. Which raises the question on the rom-com quality. I liked it as a rom-com. I thought it had decent mix of rom and com. I thought it followed the formula pretty well. I'd I'd go the regular full step up of seven. I'd go the regular full step up too. And I, you know, as we'll get into with the final grade, when we really have to start like comparing these movies, like this movie, I felt like at the low end of our higher grouped movies right now, like we have two movies that are like way down in the dumpster. And then we have like, Pretty Woman is like at the bottom of the movies over a 60. And this movie feels like at least firmly better than Pretty Woman. So I'm pretty comfortable going like a 7 out of 10 here. All right. All right. What are we thinking about for how sexist this movie is on a scale of 1 to 10? That one's tough. Not super explicitly. Very little explicit sexism. And I think that is a credit to the female writing team. You know, I don't think this movie was sexist at all, honestly. Like, I don't feel like there were any moments that struck out as, like, overt sexism. And I feel like a lot of the implicit and, like, background sexism was just kind of a product of this movie coming out in the late 90s, yeah? Yeah, I think my main issue with it was that Richard Gere's, like, stalking was treated as a ha-ha, Maggie, get over yourself. That was my main issue. Yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's a good issue to bring up. But I, I don't want to say but like I'm negating you. I'm not. I segueing. Are we thinking maybe like a two out of ten, three out of ten? I'd go a three, no higher than a three. Go a three. I'm gonna be honest. For finding out that this movie was PG, I don't know. It made me think of this movie as just being more like it. It made it feel like less of a rom-com and more of like a kid's movie, if that makes sense. Like this movie was really like quite family oriented and it makes me want to be friendlier on the, the sexist and problematic numbers, but you're probably right. I feel like we can go a three here. Cool. 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 Yeah. I agree that like, it feels more like a family movie now that you mentioned that it's a family movie. Yeah. I don't know. Like finding out that it's not PG 13, I was kind of like, Oh, and you know that, that could be, that could be related to that thing I said that one time that ended up being really wrong and that there it's not that PG-13 didn't exist in the late 80s and into the 90s I just don't think it was as common but yeah this movie is not PG-13 though it's definitely PG and I admire that they aired 
more on the family side of things. I think that's to be commended. Yes. Doesn't inherently make it good, but it's to be commended. Sure. Uh, So what are we thinking about how problematic this movie is? I've been thinking about that one. I don't think there was much in there, again, explicitly, except for the luau. I was just about to say, the luau made me feel very icky. Now, native Hawaiians, they are American citizens, so it can be really easy for your mind to go, no, that's not racist, like Hawaii's in America. No, slap on the wrist. Shame on you. (laughs) That is not the way we think. Yeah, no, Hawaii was kind of um, colonized by America. Hawaii was kind of colonized by Americans. Now, they weren't doing any, like, super offensive hula dancing. No one was speaking in funny accents. So, like, as far as, like, problematic portrayals of indigenous people go, I don't think this was that bad, but the luo definitely felt kind of yucky. Yeah, I agree. It wasn't, like, the proposal or anything, but, um, uh, yeah, it was the luau. Again, it wasn't the worst it could be, and then there weren't really characters of color. Yeah, I think there were just about zero characters of color, and I think your lack of characters of color becomes more obvious when your movie is, like, set in New York, which, again, is so diverse, like... When you're showing me, like, a New York that's nothing but white people, like, you're not in New York, bro. Even in the late 90s, like, New York is a very diverse place. And we will find this out when we watch Coming to America later down this list. Yeah. For all of its faults, that movie is New York as fuck, and it is not afraid to show you that New York is full of people of color. Yeah, so... What are you thinking, like a four? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I feel like it was a little more problematic than it was sexist, but again, a lot of that is just like late 90s ignorance more than anything else. So I feel like I could go anywhere between like a two and a four here, and I think it's better to just err on the side of a slightly higher problematic score. Yeah. All right, now we come to our final grade. Mmm... So I'm gonna gonna pull up the ranked list here, because I do think it is helpful to look at the ranked list here. Um, Just to bring us up to speed here, we have Crazy Rich Asians as a 98 out of 100, Hitch as a 94, My Big Fat Greek Wedding as a 90, Sex and the City as an 87. Wow, I can't believe that we put Sex and the City as an 87. That feels like so long ago, but I like that movie so much. Right. What Women Want is a 77, Jerry Maguire is a 70, Pretty Woman is a 63. Oh, I guess I thought we put that a little higher. I thought it was like a 67. I have 67 written down, but I could also be wrong. Interesting. Okay, maybe that's a typo. Then I have The Proposal at 24. There's something about Mary at 22. I have The Proposal right here. Uh, No, sorry, Pretty Woman. My final grade says 63 out of 100. I prefer a 63. I was looking at my 67 and I was like, that's too high. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know why. I might have to go back and listen to that bit of the episode to see if maybe we've we've done that wrong. Because there were, again, we were still kind of figuring out how we were doing the numbers back then. So it might have been confused, but I have it written down as a 63. Well, I much prefer that. I, I like a 63 for this movie. Um, so I guess the existential question right now is, I think we've established this movie is better than Pretty Woman, correct? Yes. Like, we like this better. It's definitely scoring higher than Pretty Woman. Is it scoring higher than Jerry Maguire? 
See, my impression of Jerry Maguire, or my memory of Jerry Maguire, is that it was worse than I thought. And that doesn't make it a bad movie, but it was worse than my expectations, you know? Yeah, like I think Jerry Maguire is an objectively better movie. Like it has better performances, it has a more compelling story, like it's got better emotional beats, a a more complete through line, but... It's a worse rom-com, but I, I don't know if I want to pull out the it's a worse rom-com as like a deciding reason to score one movie above another. Because at the end of the day, we're ranking rom-coms. Jerry Maguire is a pretty heckin' good movie. Like, I don't know. I feel like my mind is saying with this movie, the number that's jumping out to me is 72. Like, it doesn't feel super rational, but I do feel like this movie is a slightly better rom-com than Jerry Maguire, but I don't know. What do you think? I could go 72. I It feels irrational. It really, really does. But I do think I liked it a little better than Jerry Maguire, like as a rom-com. 68 doesn't feel right to me, right? Like going on the other side of Jerry Maguire, it's too close to Pretty Woman. Like this is a, a definite step up the ladder from Pretty Woman. Like this is a much better movie that I enjoyed a lot more. It was less problematic. Like... It's just a, it's just a, a fun little rom-com. The beginning, but I, I also, I need to keep remembering that the beginning of this movie fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy for us to say, oh, but at the end it's really cute and they end up so happy. Like the last half hour of this movie is an 80 out of 100. But like the first half of this movie was garbage and it was even worse than Pretty Woman. I don't think the first half was garbage. I do think the exposition was garbage. But, like, I feel like it got to the point quick enough, and it got good quick enough. That's fair. I don't know. I feel like I'm hemming and hawing here, but my heart is saying 72. Like, my heart is saying this movie is a little bit better than Jerry Maguire, but not by much. I know you want to leave space, but we could just go 71. Hmm, no. I think I think Jerry Maguire and Runaway Bride are different enough movies that we will find something that is that 71, you know? Okay, yeah. I think th- I think these movies are different enough and like I think there is a movie out there that takes itself a little more seriously than Runaway Bride and is a little better than I don't know. I I feel like there's a movie that could thread that needle. Okay, yeah. It feels like the rule 34 of this list. Like if we leave space, there will be a movie that fills that space. Oh yeah. I'm fine with a 72. I just, I didn't, I didn't know you'd want to go that high. Yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it doesn't feel terribly rational, but this movie is, it's quite a bit better than Pretty Woman. I can acknowledge the growth on Gary Marshall's part as, you know, a filmmaker. So I I can see the growth there. Um, I think Julia Roberts, you know, as always does a great job. I thought Richard Gere was improved, man. Richard Gere for most improved player on the rom-com list. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to nominate him for that as well. I just, I might have to, I I don't want to take everything back that I said about Richard Gere, but like, I take some things back about Richard Gere. He did a solid job in this movie. I, I think it's earned... I think it's earned a 72 out of 100. Yeah, and if there's one thing rom-coms teach us, it's that we shouldn't be rational and we should follow our hearts. Yeah. Yeah, 72. Yeah, 72. Okay, I'm updating the list right now. Coming in at sixth place 
on our list that is 10 movies long so far, Runaway Bride is a 72 out of 100, which is interesting. I don't know. It feels weird having a movie that's a 72 out of 100 be in sixth place out of 10 movies, but we really haven't hit that many garbage movies yet. I know, and I know there's some on there. Oh, I know next week's movie is on there. I don't remember what next week's is. Oh, it's Knocked Up, starring Katherine Heigl and Seth Rogen. Oh. I am not looking forward to this movie. I'm kind of excited. I'm intrigued, I'll say. I really don't like Katherine Heigl, and I can super take or leave Seth Rogen, depending on the movie and depending on the role. Well, I don't recall Katherine Heigl. Um, I kind of like Seth Rogen. Well, regardless, we will have plenty of time to discuss Knocked Up, Katherine Heigl, and Seth Rogen on next week's episode of the Gold Loppers podcast. But uh, for now, I think it's time to talk about the media that we've consumed since the last time we recorded. Yeah, right after we start a new Zoom meeting. <laughs> right after we start a new Zoom meeting. Oh my god, look at us in our new Zoom meeting. We're so back. We are so back. I love that we say that every episode. I don't think I've ever included it in the final episode, but you know, I think I'm going to include it this time. I want the sure. listener to know that every time we start a new Zoom meeting, we go, we are so back. <laughs> we don't do it every time. I feel like with, I feel like last week's episode was pretty long and we were like in the middle of a sentence when we cut off our Zoom meetings and we went like right back into it. But most of the time when we start a new Zoom meeting, we go, oh, we are so back. We're so back. I love it. I loathe it. I loathe it. And that brings us to the media that we have consumed since the last time we recorded a podcast. Kylie, did you um did you finish any books? Did you watch any movies? Have you been watching any television since the last time we recorded our podcast? I've been incredibly busy, but I've watched a surprising amount of stuff despite how busy I've been. I'm still reading uh the Hank Green book, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, and it's it's still good. I still like where it's going, but there's not much to say about it right now. I watched a really good video essay because I'm rewatching Doctor Who. I watched a really good video essay on the women in Doctor Who about how they are in the Stephen Moffat era, era, I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name, but once he became showrunner, the women became just like a lot sexier and the doctor became a sexual being. And it's really gross. Uh, and he disguises it as a feminist move because they're so powerful and badass, but it really just feels kind of like a fetish. Interesting. Yeah, but before him, and he wrote really good one-off episodes, but once he became like, the showrunner, it got bad. Um, but before him, the companions were like, not that they weren't beautiful, not like, not that like Billy Piper isn't gorgeous, but the companions were like working class women. Like Rose is so kind and she like came from working at a clothing store and she's 19 years old and like every planet that they're on, she always just finds these friendships with the working class women on those planets. And it was just a really good video essay about stuff like that. I'm really glad that you brought up good video essays. It has never occurred to me to talk about good video essays on this podcast. And I have so many. I, I watch video essays all the time. Not as much lately because I've been like busy with work and stuff. And like I'm getting used to my new schedule in New York. But 
I'm glad you brought that up because I've got I've got a couple video essays. I don't want to go super deep into them, but I'd love to name drop them real quick. One in particular that I think you would really enjoy, like genuinely get out a pen and paper. You should write this down. Noted. How the Internet Fell Out of Love with Brendan Urie. Shut up. I've seen that recommended and I added it to my watch later. It was really, really good. Like this movie, not this movie, this video essay, it made me want to write a counter video essay called like a salute to the grown up Tumblr girl. Oh, interesting. I feel like Tumblr girls are some of the most like needlessly shat on people. Like, I feel like it's just so easy to be like, huh, Tumblr girl. But like, bro, Tumblr girls are out there doing good stuff. And I know I, I love a number of Tumblr girls. And uh, there are just important people in my life who were molded by Tumblr. And uh, I don't think we as the broader internet society have been kind to the Tumblr girl. They, It can get cringe. It can get bad. But you know what? I think we've been unkind. Yeah, I feel like all the cringe stuff that happened on Tumblr is like now happening on Twitter and TikTok and this discourse is coming up on these these social media platforms when it happened on Tumblr like a decade ago. Yeah, and like Tumblr was the safest space on the internet for queer people, people of color. It's been the safest place on the internet for them for quite some time, at least from my outside opinion. Like it always seemed very LGBT friendly, you know, kink friendly, people of color friendly. I don't know. Am I am I correct in saying such a thing? Yes, it's complicated as with most things. But for the most part, yes, you obviously can't say that unilaterally. But I I always got the vibe, the gold lopper, if you will, that Tumblr was a pretty progressive place. And I think it deserves a little credit for that. Well, also, I think um, we make fun of Tumblr girls because we make fun of girls because we hate girls and we hate femininity. Like when you're making fun of like a basic bitch, like you're making fun of things that girls like and for why. Yeah, exactly. But all of that is to say that how the Internet fell out of love with Brendan Urie is a surprisingly compelling little video. I don't know if I'd quite call it a video essay. It's only about 19 minutes long. It doesn't call itself a video essay, but I thought that was a pretty compelling little video. And I wanted to name drop two more. I'm, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm in the middle of FD Signifier is, is a really, really great video essayist. He just dropped a video a couple days ago called How Capitalism is Ruining the NFL. And he's talking about like the rampant open market devaluation of the running back in football, which I think is one of the most prevalent issues that we've ever like faced in sports. Mm, interesting. So running backs... They are the people that are handed the football by the quarterback, and then they just charge into the line of big people. Ah. So the running back is a very punishing job. They have very short careers, and they are criminally underpaid because the difference between an elite running back and a running back that goes undrafted is not large. And it's not to say that there's not a difference in talent, but running backs get injured a lot. They have short careers. All it takes is one torn ACL and you'll never be the running back you were before. So basically, I don't want to say that NFL owners are colluding to pay running backs less, but it's it's been really hard for running backs to get good contracts, whereas almost any other position on the football field 
players in their mid-20s are getting record-breaking contracts at every position, and it's not happening with running backs, and it's a big issue. And I think it's really cool that FD Signifier is talking about it. Yeah, that's actually like insane. It's a super, super compelling thing. And it's something that I've heard a lot of murmurings about, but like Twitter is where discourse goes to die, as we all know. So like actually seeing like a really compelling, well-researched like video essay on it where he's interviewing like NFL running backs, it's it's really, really interesting. And I think it's a great watch. That on top of um, Secret Base has a multi-part series called Big Brother, Little Brother, Shaq vs. Kobe, oh. which is... Seth Rosenthal is his name. Is Now, I, I am one of the biggest John Boys fans out there. I'm sure you've heard me talk about my John Boys documentaries and how much I love them. The history of the Seattle Mariners, the, his, uh, you know, the, the career overview of Dave Steep. We watched the Bob Emergency together. John Boys is really quite brilliant. But another writer and essayist on Secret Base's team is Seth Rosenthal. And he he's really a stunning writer. And um, Big Brother, Little Brother, Shaq vs. Kobe is quite stunning. Strongly recommend. As of the recording of this podcast, only part one is out. But probably by the time this episode drops, it will be all out or mostly out. Nice. Yeah. So moving away from video essays, what else have you been consuming? Um. Oh, our flag means death. Uh, episode six and seven came out. I love getting the weekly update on our flag means death. I've really come to look forward to it in, in the in the podcast. <laughs> well, the finale is tomorrow and I'm pooping my pants about it. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah. Um, I'm not like going to keep saying the same things I've been saying, but episode six, I think, is one of my favorite episodes of television across TV ever. Wow. That's really bold and I don't know if I can back that up, but I did really, really like the episode. This show is really good at exploring gender and sexuality in a way where it's not like, look at us exploring gender and sexuality. And there's like no real homophobia in this world. And it shows it shows different ways to love even beyond sexuality, just different different ways to love. It does that really well. Interesting. You're really making me want to watch this. And if I didn't have like a blood feud with Taika Waititi and all of his shitty freaking movies, I really might watch it. But I, uh, God, I don't like Taika Waititi. Gosh darn it. Well, it's not his show. He's an actor in it. It's written and like produced and directed by David Jenkins. Mm, you have my attention. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I won't spoil a ton. No, you're welcome. You're welcome to spoil it. My attention span is so short and I, I have watched no TV lately, but I don't know. I guess I'd be curious for more like full thoughts on like the series as a whole next week when you've seen the finale. Oh, yeah, I will definitely have thoughts. But what I do want to say right now is this episode they're like putting on a party. They just want to have a party. So they're like, it's Calypso's birthday. We need to have a party. And, um, we, John is, uh, putting on makeup, like drag makeup. And he puts on a really fancy dress and Izzy comes in and Izzy's like, he's, uh, he's like a really bitter, angry, mean, middle-aged man. Mm -hmm. And he's always just like, swearing and yelling at people and he comes in and he's like what the fuck are you doing and lee john's like well i'm i'm assembling my look and izzy's like what the fuck is a look you know we john kind of explains it and you can see izzy like about to just say his normal shit but then he like looks at himself in the mirror and he looks at Wee john in the mirror and then later on in the episode he comes out with like drag makeup on and he's singing and being vulnerable and then we just like 
pan to other relationships. Like there's a polyamorous relationship that just happened. There was no drama behind it. Um, and it's very, it's, it's an episode about love in like an unconventional way. And I really, really like that. Good. That sounds so wholesome and just like so fun. Yeah. And then the, the next episode rips your heart out, but naturally that's besides the point. That's besides the point. Yeah, I will look forward to hearing about the season finale of that, and then we're, we're both we both have big things coming up. You're you're you have our flag means death tomorrow, and on Saturday I'm seeing Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, the long movie! It is so long, like to the point where I had to like set aside the majority of a Saturday to go see this movie because it is three hours and twenty seven minutes long. I'm sure it's great, but that's too long of a movie. Man, you know, I I looked at the trailer for this movie. It looks so good. And there are not enough movies about what white people did to Native Americans. Like, there will never be enough movies about, like, what white people did to Native Americans. And I've seen, like, some press footage of, like, the consultant they used for the language of of the the native americans in the movie like he was there at the red carpet but like he was criticizing the movie at the same time as building it up and talking about how like nuanced of an issue everything is and like how you couldn't have done this and you could have done that and like i don't know martin scorsese is just really smart for hiring smart people to consult on this movie where like he's not the perfect person to make this movie but it's important that this movie is happening yeah, I'm because I just don't have an attention span. So I'm almost definitely not going to see the movie. But I'm really, really excited to see what you think about it. Because it does seem important. It is important. I tell you what I'm going to do, Kylie, when this movie comes out on streaming or on Blu-ray, when I can download this movie very legally on Blu-ray, I'm going to cut it up and make it into a four episode miniseries for you. <laughs> And then I'll finish it in one day because it's just four episodes. Yeah, exactly. Like there could be like a whole business behind just like cutting up Martin Scorsese's movies into four episode miniseries. And and I'd get behind that. Just give me like four 48 minute clips. Like when I when I say it like that, like if I was to say like, Kylie, it's in four easy installments of 48 minutes, you would be like, huh, yeah, you had me at hello. <laughs> Exactly. And I know I know it's a little trick. I know it's a little trick on my brain, but my brain doesn't care. Exactly. So we're going to have a lot to talk about in that department next week. What about books, Kylie? Anything anything exciting happening in the world of books for you? Besides the Hank Green book, not really. You? Oh, do I have something <laughs> exciting in the world of books, Kylie? Well, Uh-oh. I finished The Way of Kings this past week. And? So this book is long. It's extremely long. This is a 1,000-page book with a 43-hour audiobook. I listened to it on regular speed. Oh. Like, I, I did not Kylie it. I did not two times speed. I did not 1.5 speed. I like to listen to the actors perform it at the speed they speak. So this was an investment. I started listening to this book in August. <laughs> wow it It is is october it is october it fully took me two months like i was still on contract at the purple rose when i started this book oh my god (laughs) which is crazy i think it was probably like there were two or three times in the first 25 hours of this audiobook that i almost quit it i was close it was dense and convoluted and i didn't get it and there was too much world building 
bro, this book hit me like a freaking freight train at like the three quarter mark. This book got fucking insane. And I'm sure the ending was great based on how you sound right now. Oh my gosh. It just, this book was like, oh, you remember this thing? It was this. You remember that? It was this. Like, it, I, I don't want to call them twists because I think it does Brandon Sanderson a disservice. But like, I feel like I've been playing a game of connect the dots very zoomed in. And at the end of the book, he starts to zoom out and the picture is fucking mind-blowing. Yeah, you're assembling the puzzle and you're looking at the little puzzle pieces and now we see the whole puzzle. And the crazy thing is this is, I mean, this is going to be a 10 book series. Like even after 1000 page book, it's very clear. Like it's clear that he's revealing a part of the picture, but like I cannot even imagine what this world is going to look like at the end of 10 books. Like he has this sense of scope like his his world building is so detailed these characters are so flushed out and interesting like i was really stunned by this book by the end of it it is very very compelling like it was a pretty firm like nine out of ten for me i i really enjoyed it good i'm glad i i cannot believe it's gonna be 10 books yeah he's doing it in like two parts so he's writing like the first five books taking a break for a while and then coming back to write the second five books okay so it's in like two movements as it's planned but man i this dude does so much writing oh my gosh yeah i can imagine the speed at which brandon sanderson writes blows me away all four of the first four books are over a thousand pages books three and four are both 1200 pages like These books came out, like, yes, like, years apart, but this dude has released, like, 20 books, and he's, like, not even 50. Where? How? When? Why? What? And that's on Brandon Sanderson. And, you know, fuck James Patterson. I don't know the first thing about James Patterson. James Patterson is so prolific, though, isn't he? He has about, like, three bazillion books, um, but it turns out, like, I think he mostly uses a ghostwriter anyway. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah. And like ghostwriters have their place, but ghostwriters have their place, but uh yeah, I don't know. That makes me feel icky. But yeah, Brandon Sanderson, he does the thing, man. And like I really just I have to give props to Brandon Sanderson because he is quite an incredible writer and uh this book is really compelling. He's I I I need to say it. His his prose is utilitarian. Like his dialogue is not sexy. This is a person with a really incredible imagination. He is not a gorgeous author. Mm -hmm. That is like the note that I need to say. Like you are reading Brandon Sanderson for the world he immerses you in, not for like Ernest Hemingway prose. You feel me? Yeah. And I can get behind that. Yeah, like he's he's not going to knock you on your ass with good verse or clever wordplay or anything like that. Like this is a story that is massive in scale and the scale and the complexity of the story is what's stunning. It's not necessarily the right. Now he's not he's no slouch or anything. I'm not saying he's a bad writer. I'm just saying that this is a man who is a world builder more than he is a poet. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. So The Way of Kings, very good. I am on Words of Radiance, book two, right now. And so far, it is par for the course. I am enjoying it. 
I did want to say before we move on, I wanted to do just a little footnote for Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being. Uh, Rick Rubin is a very successful music producer. He's produced for many artists that I don't know very well because he's done a lot of rap and hip hop. But this was kind of an interesting little book about like an approach to being a creative person and an approach to being an artist. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, not stunning or anything. There was just as much like fortune cookie wisdom as there was like genuinely good insight on like what you have to do to let creativity flow through you in like an open and honest way. That checks out though. Like I was glad that I read this book with a pen in my hand so I could like jot down the pages I really liked and just like ignore all of like the faux spiritual like mumbo jumbo that I didn't jive with. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if you went to get like a tarot reading and they like also taught you how to like set up a Roth IRA and make sure you were making good investments. That would be something. Like, that's kind of how this, this kind of how, like, this book felt. Like, I felt like every other page was a fortune cookie and every other page was, like, some Confucian proverb or something. (laughs) Anywho, Rick Rubin's book was pretty solid and I dug it. Nice. Is there any other media that you would like to talk about, Kylie? I do want to mention really quick, I did rewatch and I rewatched a couple Jeff Goldblum things over the weekend because it was his birthday. And what I want to say about Independence Day is that I, it made me realize that I do not care about plot holes. If I dislike a movie, plot holes is going to be the last reason on the list. I don't think it takes away my joy from movies at all. That must be a really fascinating way to live your life. <laughs> yeah, no, like I recognize them and I recognize like why they're not good, obviously, but it never takes away from my enjoyment. Remember in Independence Day that the downfall of the aliens is that they have USB ports in their spaceships? See, 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 I meant to pay attention during that part, but I was furiously sewing Halloween costumes while I watched this movie, so I did miss that part. I'm pretty sure the crux of this movie is that he plants a virus on the ship, but he, like, loads it onto a USB stick and, like... I might be completely wrong. I'm pretty sure I I researched this at some point and like I tried to find that clip, but like there was something about like the way he destroyed the alien spaceship involved like hardware transferring a virus over like a USB stick to like an alien spaceship. It was something like that. And it was like one of the most glaring plot details ever. But I I understand what you mean where that movie is a movie that is like it is so riding on its energy and the way it makes you feel. And it's like, this movie's going to have plot holes, but we are going to take you along for a thrilling ride. Yeah. And it's like really cheesy, I guess. But like, I think the energy is really fun. And I think the characters are super compelling. And Jeff Goldblum looks like a lesbian. It can't get better than that. It literally can't get any better than that. And, you know, I, I remember Independence Day with fondness. I don't know if I could watch it now. Like, I feel like the the critical movie watcher in me would have a lot of problems with Independence Day, but I look back on it with a certain amount of fondness from a younger time. Yeah, I have it on my laptop in a not illegal way, and I will just go back and watch that scene and see if there's a USB. I I swear to God, he puts a virus on a flash drive and plugs the flash drive into an alien spaceship. I'm 1,000% sure that it happens, because I remember thinking to myself, like, huh, 
you know, the aliens in Signs really got shit on for, like, being allergic to water, but the aliens in Independence Day were killed because they use USB-B. See, I know... I know they put the virus in. I know it has to go into the ship. I just don't know if it's USB. That's like the one detail I don't know. I don't know if it's USB, but whatever they do, they successfully plug it in to the alien ship, which it couldn't have been anything but a floppy disk or a USB stick. Like it's one (laughs) of the two. Yeah, it is an older movie. It is an older movie, but regardless, they give a virus to an alien spaceship and that is insane, but we had so much fun watching them do it that I don't know if we can fault them for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So not to like talk about a movie I've seen, you know, a bunch and like go really deep into it. I just think it made me realize something about me as a movie watcher, what I care about and what I don't care about. Yeah, and I think there are times, I think it's an atmosphere thing, right? Like if a filmmaker can really immerse you in the atmosphere of a movie, they can make you forget that there are plot holes. And a lot of times, like if you as a filmmaker can commit to your story and say, I'm not going to fill the plot holes, people might just not notice. Like if you craft a good story, people won't notice or they'll forgive your plot holes because the more you try to cover them up, the more plot holes you're going to create in the process. Exactly. Like Christopher Nolan movies are full of crazy plot holes and wild exposition, but like the dude crafts, an incredibly aesthetically pleasing movie. And I just, I'm on board with it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and nitpick all the plot holes in the Christopher Nolan movies because he creates a really compelling story. And I think that's the most important thing you got to do as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I just, that's just how I feel about all movies, I guess, is that like, I'm not gonna nitpick the plot holes. I'm gonna try my best to have fun. And I think that's a good way to be. I think that is something that we can celebrate. I'm glad that you uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed Independence Day. I'm glad you had a fun time with lesbian Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I did. I really did. What do you think, Kylie? Is it time to talk about our shark of the week? Oh, it's time to talk about our shark of the week. I'm going to send you this picture right now. Hey, it's Shark Boy. Oh, I'm so excited. Kylie, uh, for the listener, Kylie asked me last night if she could send me a picture of today's shark of the week. And I said, nope, you're going to have to wait till we're recording the episode. So Kylie is now sending me a digital image that you, the listener, will not have access to. Sucks to suck. I'll tell you to look it up when I get to the explaining part. Oh my god, look at that long tail. Yeah, that's a thresher shark. That is our shark of the week. A thresher shark. Kylie, for my own reference and the reference of the sheet, how do you spell thresher? Is it spelled the way I think it's spelled? Yeah, T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R. The thresher shark. Yeah, Um. now it would probably be smart because there's three different thresher sharks to separate them because there are 75 episodes of this podcast, but I'm not going to do that because I don't know enough about them individually. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like it would be kind of a silly joke to do like one thresher shark now and just do like three weeks in a row of thresher sharks. But I'll, <laughs> I'll let you lu- I'll let you lump them all into a group. I mean, the shark of the week is is easily our most casual part of this very casual podcast. We literally <laughs> just do it for shits and giggles. Yeah. So there's the common thresher, the pelagic thresher and the big eye thresher. I hope you know that I'm not going to try to spell pelagic i'm just they're all thresher shark exactly um and i can't really tell them apart like if i'm just looking at an image on google images the internet says like they're each different colors like a little bit 
um, but that's easily skewed by the color of the water. Um, and obviously, the big eye thresher has a bigger eye. Whoa, that's like the biggest plot twist of 2023 so far. <laughs> exactly. Um, so these guys can get anywhere, depending on the species, from 10 to 20 feet. But a lot of the time, half of it is that tail. I feel like you say 10 to 20 feet and I'm like, oh, yeah, 10 to 20 feet. And then I realize that, like, I am almost as tall as like a queen size bed. Like, you know, maybe that shark is just three queen size beds. Like, excuse me. Right. That is massive. Yeah. And like, because, you know, they they compare they do a lot on Great Whites on Shark Week. And so like. 20 foot shark yeah that's pretty big yeah no that's 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 massive especially when it's a great white that's like big and stocky like that like the thresher it's very slender and it has like a shorter mouth and nose and um so and the most of the most of the length is in the tail anyway so like 20 isn't as big for that shark if that makes sense yeah like i just don't think the average person understands like a great white shark is like the size of a ford (laughs) f-150 Like I think yeah, it's I big. think it's I think it's hard to communicate to the average person that like twenty feet is the length of like a Ford pickup truck. Like that is not <laughs> a small creature. Right. So yeah. Um they're big guys. Uh so yeah. Okay. The Thresher shark is the one you'll probably see in memes where like it looks like that shark is giving you the side eye. That's that's a thresher shark, if you've ever seen that meme. I don't know if I've ever seen that meme, but I feel like you're now contractually obligated to send me that meme. Yeah, I'll find it. There's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them swimming around. Much appreciated. But yeah, so these tails are pretty cool. Uh, the thresher will swim in circles around like balls of fish to kind of round them up. And then they'll slap their tail and it can stun the fish. It can stun up to like 30 fish at a time. Oh my gosh, that's like... Pistol shrimp vibes. Yeah. Mantis shrimp? I don't know. Mantis shrimp. There, there, is a, there is a crustacean out there that like it can clack its claws together so loud that it'll just like stun a fish. Yeah, that's basically what it's doing because it's such a long tail. And um, the, I did see on, I think, Wikipedia that it says they can use it to slice their prey in half. But then when I checked out the source material for that, I could not find that fact anywhere. So take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, that sounds pretty sus. We do have to uh, we do have to concede that Wikipedia is not always the most reliable source. And people can just kind of say whatever and cite a bogus source. And if there's no one there to cross-reference it, it stands. Yeah, and the source isn't even bogus. It's a really long research paper that I skimmed, um, but nowhere does it mention that they use it to slice their prey in half. Um, but it is a whole research paper on tail slapping. That is like the term that they use, and I think it's so silly. I got my master's degree in thresher sharks with an emphasis and a thesis in tail slapping. Like, that's what it is, and <laughs> it's so funny. That's so metal. I don't think I've ever heard of a more metal college paper than just like, yes, I'm writing a paper about how a shark uses its tail to like stun fish with a loud noise. That's insane. Yeah, I should have gone into that. It's never too late. Don't get me started. I'll do it. Don't, I'll you, don't. I'll, because... I'll, get you, I'll get you started. No, because I would go back to college and do it if it wasn't such um, a risky career path. And I've already gotten a degree in one risky career path. 
Well, Kylie, when we get rich and famous off of the Gold Loppers podcast, we're both going to go back to school as marine biologists and we're going to study sharks. Okay, cool. Good, good, good. Yeah, we're going to we're going to do a Gold Loppers spin-off where it's just a shark podcast. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, indeed. Anyway, the thresher shark. Yeah, so they live pretty much everywhere depending on the species again they're endothermic so they can control their body temperature which allows them to have a a wider range uh but scientists are like you know its range is probably bigger than we think but we don't know which is a common theme for sharks they they do they don't have like a breeding schedule they kind of breed whenever but the litters are really really small um and they don't mature super fast so depending again on the species they are vulnerable slash endangered Yeah, so apparently they have like these special teeth when they're in the womb that allows them to eat the other embryos. Um, But then uh, as they grow in the womb, they kind of like lose the ability to eat with those teeth. And then they don't get the teeth back until after they're born. Bro, the thresher shark is so metal. Yeah, but they are overfished because of their cool fins and their cool tails. Like they're game fish pretty much, which is uh not good. Yeah, when you have like when you have the tail equivalent of like a giant awesome mohawk, people want that shit. Yeah, and there's no reason these guys should be endangered when they pretty much have no natural predators. Like it's all us. My face when literally no shark has any natural predators and they're just all endangered because people suck. Well, some sharks have uh, predators, and they are uh, other sharks and whales. I definitely meant to clarify that I was not being serious about how most sharks have no natural predators. I know that's not true, but I just, I'm noticing a reoccurring theme in that XXX shark does not have a natural predator, yet it is still endangered because people like to fish for them, which is so fucked. Yeah, and pollute our earth. Womp womp. Yeah, um, and they're no danger to humans at all. I don't think there's really any recorded attacks. They have really small jaws, and they're super skittish anyway. Skittish little guys. They are, and they're so stupid looking. I love them. (laughs) They are one of the few species to breach, which means they leap out of the water, and these guys launch themselves out of the water, which, you know, makes sense given their tail. Can you imagine you're just like on a boat and a freaking 20-foot fish just leaps like feet out of the water yeah like great whites do that too and that's uh infinitely scarier absolutely insane i think i'm gonna spend the rest of the evening on youtube watching sharks jump out of the ocean oh my god just look up air jaws that's like a reoccurring shark week show where they just measured sharks jumping out of the water yep i'm gonna do that all night (laughs) me too Um, But I do want to explain the photo that I sent you. So if you click on it with me and then zoom in uh, to the thing sticking out of the bottom of it, that's a baby thresher shark. It just like grows out of its mother's body? No, this is a shark giving birth. They captured a photo of a thresher shark giving birth. Oh my god. Sharks, wait, sharks give live, sharks have live birth? What? It depends on the species. Um, a lot of them give live births, including the thresher shark. And shark births are not something that scientists witness a lot. Again, depending on the species, some of them you see it a bunch, especially with those that lay eggs. But this is a really uncommon photo. This is from 2013. She's just like swimming around too. Just like swimming around, chilling, giving birth, you know? Yeah, that black thing is, I think, a cleaner fish uh, right there. I feel like I feel like I'm going to put an, a link 
to this image in, in the episode description so people can go find this image that we're talking about if they feel so inclined. If you just look up Thresher Shark giving birth 2013 or something like that, you'll find it. Uh, I did okay. have to go through like three articles because the Wikipedia uh, article cited something and I was like, Thresher Shark giving birth? I have to see. And then I clicked on it and then the link didn't work anymore. Then I had to go through like two articles which just didn't work because paywalls or images don't work. But I found it eventually. We love playing link tag with Wikipedia. So yeah, these things are really, really cool and I really like them a lot. Uh, wow, yeah. So the Thresher Shark is so cool. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about it before we get to our shark score? He's just really silly and I love him and he's also kind, kind of stupid looking. We love silly, stupid looking guys who can also kill people with the shock waves that their tails send out. What? <laughs> The ocean is so metal. Yeah. What are we thinking for our shark score, Kylie? I don't know. Solid 30 out of 10. How does that sound? Sounds great to me. I feel like I always want to err on the side of higher, but I trust your judgment. I can go with 30 out of 10 for the Thresher shark. I am mildly pulling these numbers out of my ass, but yeah. I mean, yeah, and I, I'm the one who edits these episodes, so I'm the one who hears the shark score a number of times as I edit every week, so I feel like I'm a little more invested in them, and I create little mini narratives in my head, but we did specifically say that the shark score is not to compare any one shark to another shark. It's just a number that's bigger than 10. Exactly. So the Thresher shark is a 30 out of 10. This has been the Shark of the Week, brought to you by Kylie Stone. Final summation. All right. And I think that just about brings this episode of the Gold Loppers podcast to an end. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. My name is, as always, Ethan May. And I'm Kylie Stone. If you want to find me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok, you can check me out at Ethan May Act, as well as on Letterboxd at Ethan May Act if you want to see the list update every week with our thoughts on the movies. We also have a Gold Loppers Instagram and a Gold Loppers Patreon. We know that the Patreon's a little premature, but we have it out there just in case. And you can find me on Instagram and YouTube at Kylie Ann Stone and on TikTok as Kylie A. Stone. Oh my gosh, I also totally have a YouTube channel that's just my name, Ethan May. All right, thanks again, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week talking about Knocked Up, starring Katherine Heigl and Seth Rogen. We'll see you then.